verses 33 through 40. This is He of Psalm 119, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline mine heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Establish thy word unto thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy law, for your commandments and precepts and statutes. Thank you for your grace by which you bring us to new life, by which you quicken us, regenerating us, renewing us, and filling us with that wisdom that comes only from above. Give us of your wisdom in abundance that we may walk in your ways, we ask through Jesus our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We're considering this evening the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. As there are two tables of the law, one concerning our duties to God, the first table, and one concerning our duties to man, the second table, so in the Lord's Prayer there are three petitions, the first concerning God's kingdom and His righteousness and glory, and the second concerning our own needs. This evening we'll look at the final petition which concerns the glory of God. Thy will be done. Verse 33 of Psalm 119, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Now this word teach comes from the word for an arrow that is shot straight, right on target. Make my knowledge regarding your statutes to be right on the money, right on the target, right on the bullseye, so that your revealed will, the statutes, your written laws, those statutes may be in my mind or in my intellect as the Vulgate translates it. Right on target in my mind. Now a statute, by the way, is a standing law, a law that stands. That's what the word stare means. It means to stand. Statute is what stands. So here God has a standing law on the books. I need to understand it. I need to know it. I need to have a right conception in my intellect concerning your statutes. Then what? And I shall keep it unto the end, he says. Faith unto works, knowing unto doing, preaching unto practice. Not merely just keeping every once in a while. In fact, this word to the end, have you ever rolled something down a hill and it never stops, just keeps on going until it gets to the end? That's where this root word is in Hebrew. It means a declining hill all the way down. I don't want to stop keeping as if you were going uphill, you'd stop and rest. No, I just want to keep going in your commandments all the way in your statutes, even unto the end. Verse 34, 
Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Here again, notice the request very similar. Teach me or cause my mind to have bullseye knowledge of your statutes. Now he asks, give me understanding. These are prayers, by the way. Teach me, O Lord. It's a request of God. Give me, O Lord. Give me understanding, and I shall keep. Understanding unto keeping. We must know the law of God, and we must keep the law of God. And he says, yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Not just talk, not mere external compliance, but with the consent of my mind, my will, and my affections, the whole man devoted to your law. Now let me just say for uh, our consideration that the conception of the Bible of the heart is very different from our modern conception of the heart. Modern man, when he hears heart, he thinks of like a box of chocolates that's red-shaped in the shape of a pretty little heart. He usually thinks of his affections or his emotions or worse, his passions, and he calls that his heart. The Bible does no such thing. The Bible tells us that man thinks with his heart. In fact, that's the ordinary verb associated with the noun heart. The heart thinks. The heart reckons. The heart also chooses, and the heart has affections because it's the core of our being. And we are composed of parts. God is not. We are. So we must have our entire mind, our thinking, our will, our affections, the whole inner man devoted to the law of God to observe and keep it so that we think upon its statutes, we choose its ways, we delight in his commandments. That's the idea of the whole heart. Verse 35. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. You, God, cause me to tread in that pathway where you give commandments. Remember Samuel? He had a path that he walked in and his sons didn't follow. They went aside out of the pathway. So he says, God, make me to walk in that path. Cause me to tread in that pathway. You must cause me to do this or it shall not be done, in other words. And then he says, for therein do I delight. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said? I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But what did he find in his members? Another law, the law of sin and death, bringing him into captivity. So we must pray, Lord, I delight in your law, but you must cause me to walk in it. Incline, verse 36, incline mine heart unto thy testimonies. I have good desires, but if you don't sustain and incline my desires, they'll go back to their own ways. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not unto covetousness. Remember, that's what took the sons of Samuel off the path, covetousness. Lucre, bribes. The Geneva Bible notes 
concerning covetousness by this or this word covetousness meaning all other vices because covetousness is the root of all evil this evil concupiscence this desire for what is forbidden that's what makes men idolaters that's what makes them take God's name in vain. That's what makes them profane his day. That's what causes them to disrespect their authorities. That's what causes them to take other men's life. They want something God has not appointed for them. Covetousness. I note then this doctrine. Thy will be done means praying that we will both know and obey God's will of precept. Now, by the way, just um, for explanation's sake, we tend to distinguish between the will of God's commandments and the will of his decrees. And we'll see this in the passage we'll look at in Acts. The will of God, so far as his commandments, lets us know our duty. The will of God concerning his decrees simply tells us the futurition of a thing, what will happen in the future. Okay, so God's will is sometimes his decree in the Bible, it's talking about that, and sometimes it's talking about his precepts. When we say, thy will be done, we're asking for both, and we'll see how shortly. Thy will be done, though, in this context means praying that we will both know and obey God's will of precept. God, teach me, give me understanding, Incline my heart and then make me to go in the path. I shall keep thy law. I shall keep it unto the end. I take delight in this. So you, by teaching me your statutes, will cause me to walk in it. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So if a man knows and understands and grasps the law and statutes of God, that will produce a practical effect. If someone says they know the law of God and they don't walk in it, well, then you know they don't actually know it. They don't actually understand it. Or otherwise, they would submit themselves to it. Not perfectly, yet sincerely. The psalmist asks God to teach, to give understanding, to make him to go, to incline his heart. Why? Why would he need to ask God these things? to beg them of him in prayer. Well, it's this. What is our natural bent? Are we naturally knowledgeable concerning God's statutes, judgments, commandments? Do we naturally walk in his way? Please open to Romans 8, further back in the passage we concluded earlier today. We'll look at verses 7 and 8, page 1139. Why is it that the psalmist teaches us to ask God these things. The apostle tells us, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not even possible. Please turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, page 1150 of your pew Bibles. Verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Notice, man in his carnal or natural estate, does he know the things of God? No, he can't. Does he desire the things of God? Not at all. Desires the opposite. Can he receive the things of God? Nope. Can he subject himself to the law of God? Can't do that. Pretty miserable state, isn't it? That's where we all are by nature. And when we are brought to newness of life, we are not perfectly sanctified. We are not perfectly regenerated. We are not perfectly brought to conformity to the image of Christ. Are we regenerate? Yes. Are we sanctified? Yes. Are we perfectly so? No. And so the psalmist asks God, teach me, for I'm ignorant. Cause me, because I can't cause myself. Give me understanding, because otherwise I can't keep your law. Incline my heart, or what am I going to do? I'm going to incline it to covetousness. You see how we depend upon God's grace. This is a rebuke then to the notion of our natural goodness, our ability, our comparative righteousness. Oh, look, I'm not as bad as him. Yeah, and does that mean you can subject yourself to the law of God? That you understand his commandments and can do them? No, it doesn't mean that. This is a rebuke to our supposed human wisdom. There is none. Rather, we must ask God, teach us, give us understanding, make us to go, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Let us then in exhortation pray that we may be taught by God, enabled to obey, and walk in the path of his commandments. It's not just pious words, thy will be done. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. Something will happen that God wants? No, it means, God, write your commandments on my heart. Make me to know what your standing laws require. Help me to understand that light of the law, the knowledge of God revealed therein. Make me, cause my feet to walk in your commandments. You know that's a gospel promise, right? God says that he will sprinkle us from clean water and wash us from all our filthiness and all of our idols. Then you know what he says? And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my judgments and to do them. Ezekiel 36. God in the gospel does not say, you know all that stuff about my law, forget it, delete it. Move on. We got a new book. Forget the old one. He says no such thing. In fact, the revelation that a person is carnal is that they do not submit themselves to the law of God and they can't even do so. Spirituality means a person submits to the law of God because God wrote his law upon their heart. So let us pray. God, enable me to obey Cause me to walk in your statutes. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies. Does that mean that you're not responsible to incline your own heart to God's testimonies? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means you recognize how wicked you are. That you can't do it and I can't do it. My heart will naturally and your heart will naturally go to covetousness. We have to have his grace to incline our hearts. Please turn to Acts 21, page 1122. Acts 21, 
We'll read verses 8 through 4. Or, excuse me, 8 through 14. We won't be reading backwards today. Acts 21, verse 8. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Here, notice a few things. Verse 11 is very instructive. Thus saith, what do you expect after those words? The Lord, Lord, Jehovah. What does he say? The Holy Ghost. Who then is the Holy Ghost? He is Jehovah. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle. Now this is a futurition of actual events. Concerned with particular persons, Paul, who owned the girdle, the Jews who were at Jerusalem, the Gentiles who would receive him. That's what this concerns, particular persons. Also a particular locality, Jerusalem. This is not God's will of precept. No. He's not saying thou shalt bind Paul at Jerusalem. That would be a sin. You can't have God commanding sins. He doesn't do it. Rather, God is prophesying through this man, speaking to Paul and saying, and to others, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this girdle. This is what we call fate. In fact, the word fate means that which is spoken, fatus, that which has been said. Who said? God did. He spoke. He decreed. God said, thus saith the Holy Ghost. This is your fate, Paul. Now, we are not fatalists, meaning that we base our ethics off of predestination. That's absurd. That's ungodly and wicked. We don't judge our duty based off of providence. We judge our duty based off of God's commandments. So we are not fatalists. But do we believe in fate? Of course we do. God said it. God does it. It's his will. So this is what's going to happen to you. And shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. This word, if you recall, deliver up. God delivered his son up for us all, Romans 8. Judas delivered him over to the Jews, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews delivered him unto Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate delivered him up to be crucified by those Roman soldiers. All the same word. They shall deliver him up 
or deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Paul's fate has been spoken. It shall come to pass. Verse 12. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now this is perhaps a little sad, isn't it? This is Luke, we, Silas, the other apostolic men, Philip, the deacon, his prophesying daughters, maybe even Agabus, we don't know for sure. But we and they of that place, everybody at Caesarea sitting around in Philip's house, they all tell him, well, you shouldn't do what God said is going to happen. Please don't do that. Parakalein. It's the advocacy of the Holy Ghost who comes alongside and is our advocate or comforter. But here they come along to advocate for what? Rebellion. Don't do what God wants you to do, Paul. So they come alongside this man and they hear of his afflictions and persecutions that await him at Jerusalem and they beg him, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't be persecuted. Don't be imprisoned as God has spoken, as God has fated. Do not do it. Do you remember when Peter was referred to as Satan? Do you know why he was referred to as Satan? Because he didn't want Jesus to do what was fated by God himself. The Son of Man shall go up to Jerusalem, and he'll be betrayed to the Jews and they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they'll crucify him. And the third day he'll rise again. What does Peter say? Not so, Lord. God have mercy on you. Never going to be the case with you. You know what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan, for you savor the things of men, not the things of God. All these savor the things of men. And we're not much different. I don't mean to be harsh with them or unkind, just illustrating our wickedness. The apostle, though, in verse 13, then Paul answered, What mean you to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Here is a man who has prayed, Thy will be done. If God has fated that I go and I die at Jerusalem or am bound at Jerusalem, I'm ready. Why? Paulos, doulos, Jesu Christu. This is how he opens his letters. Paul, slave of Jesus Christ. If the master says, Paul, I want you to go get bound at Jerusalem or maybe die, you know what the doulos says? Yes, master. Your wish is my command. What you say goes. You are my Lord. I am ready to submit myself to the decree of providence. That's what he's saying. If I execute my function and office and duty, and that leads to a consequence you don't like, stop crying about it. That's what he's saying when he says, what mean ye? He knows what they mean. They mean to break his heart and play on his sympathies for himself and get him off his duty. That's exactly what they mean. It's a rhetorical question. Stop trying to get me to stop doing what I should. What mean ye? For I am ready, he says. I'm prepared. I'm equipped. My mind is resolved. My will is submitted. 
This is the frame of readiness to submit to the decree of providence, though it meant his bondage or his death. This prayer, thy will be done, was engraved upon his mind. It was engraved upon his will in a way that it was not engraved on the others at Caesarea. He was ready for such an event. Come what may, he would do his duty. And notice, for the name of the Lord Jesus. I am the slave. He is the master. Now remember from our study, hallowed be thy name. What is the name of God? His it's his authority. He is my king. He is the powerful God. He gives laws and I obey. He has all right, all kingdom, all glory, all authority. A name above every name, right? So for the name of the Lord Jesus means that if my master bids me go, who am I to say no? I will do the will of Christ. I will pursue his commandments to me. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. Verse 14 tells us. Now, Paul was persuaded, we saw in Romans chapter 8. For I am persuaded that neither height nor depth, etc., right? Nothing shall be able to separate us. Here's something you couldn't persuade Paul of. Don't do your duty because providence is going to be bad for you. Don't do what you're commanded to do because the decree of fate is settled and you're going to have to suffer. You could not persuade him of this. He had a holy determination. And many people would say, you're just so stubborn, Paul. Why don't you learn to listen to reason? Why won't you listen to the rest of us unbelieving people who won't submit our wills to God's? That's often what people think. And sometimes that's what they say. Don't do your duty. You know bad things will happen if you do your duty. Just be wise. Well, is that actual wisdom? It's not. It's foolish. It's trying to play God. It's trying to control fate. It's trying to control God's decree rather than submit ourselves to it. So Paul is ready to submit to God's decree. And therefore, when he prayed, thy will be done, not merely of commandment, but enable me, O God, to submit to your decree. And what do they say? You know, Paul actually helps them to grow as Christians. The stubbornness of a godly Christian in their duty can encourage others to do theirs. Look what they say. The will of the Lord be done. That's why they stopped talking or ceased. They realized he would not be persuaded. They didn't say, well, this is Paul's will. No, this is God's will. If this man pursues his calling and does his duty and he is imprisoned or died, that's God's decree. That's his will. And let us then submit to it. That's what they're saying. The will of the Lord be done, not our will, not what we want. We want you to stay here in Caesarea, but may God's will be accomplished in this circumstance. God's will of providence, God's will of decree. God's will causes all events that come to pass. 
Some people don't like this idea and they shy away from it, but they're obviously committed to it. Theologically, at least, if not in their affections, they recognize that the evil that's going to be done to Paul is God's will. It's what he's decreed. It's what he has caused to come to pass. Let it take place. Let it be done. That which God spoke through his prophet Agabus. I note then this doctrine. Thy will be done means praying that we will submit to the events decreed by God. Thy will be done means praying that we will submit to the events decreed by God. And that regardless of the cost we may be required to pay. That was the attitude of the apostle, was it not? I'm ready, not merely to be bound and imprisoned. I'm ready to die, he says. That's a heavy price to pay. In the pathway of duty, to die for the sake of your master, quite a price. Thy will be done means to pray that we will submit to the events decreed by God regardless of the cost we may be required to pay. Then an exhortation from this. Let us learn to trust in God's purposes, in his goodness, wisdom, and love. Let us learn to trust in God's purposes, in his goodness, in his wisdom, and in his love. We could say, well, what shall be shall be. I don't know why it comes to pass. I'm not really sure what the point is, but I will submit to it. This would be something like the Stoics believed. Just submit yourself, don't worry about it. And that's not really the biblical teaching. It's similar to the biblical teaching. In fact, it's very similar in its practical import. Don't become attached to these things because God could take them away. That's the Stoic position, that's correct. But notice, when we say the will of the Lord be done, why is that? Because his will is good for us. And he loves us and is good to us and cares about us. And Peter says, if it be needful, you must suffer for a little while. Such is the will of the Lord. Submit to it. It's for your good. It's out of love that he bears. It's wise. It's not haphazard. It's not chance. When we submit to God's providence, as Stonewall Jackson used to say, it is an ever-kind providence. It is meant for your good, out of love for you, from God's heart, not a mere mechanical decree. Let us then, in exhortation, learn to do our duty, leaving the will of God to determine the outcomes. That's what Paul's saying. Even if it's not just being bound, but also entails death, doesn't matter. Here's my duty. This is what I'm committed to doing. I must needs go down to Jerusalem, he said. God apparently directed him that he had to go there. So he's ready to go. He's ready to pursue in obedience to his calling. Let us learn to do our duty and leave the will of God or the providence of God to determine the outcome of events. Duties are ours, consequences are God's. And though 
Can you imagine if a prophet came to you and said, Casey, if you go to that job tomorrow, you're dead. You're going to get electrocuted and die. And what if they actually knew what they were talking about instead of just being a raving lunatic? And then you went and you said, well, don't go to work, Daddy. Don't go, honey. You've got to stay home. What's the will of God? Go to work. That's what God commands you to do. It's the thing you said you would do. You committed yourself, you do it. We do our duty and leave the results to God. Now, if you could reschedule, perhaps, maybe you should. But Paul could not reschedule. He had an appointment in Jerusalem. He had to do his duty, and he could not concern himself with the consequences. Let us have that same spirit of faith as the apostle did still to do our duties regardless of results. And this is how the angels behave. When it is spoken by their Lord and Master, they do it. They stand and wait. They receive in order. They go immediately. They fulfill His will. Let us be as the angels in heaven. What do we pray for in the third petition? In the third petition, which is, Thy will be done in earth, as it is in heaven, we pray that God, by His grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to His will in all things as the angels do in heaven.